Good morning. This week we are concluding chapter 15 in John's Gospel uh, with a message that is uh, perhaps at first a little hard to hear. Uh, Now before we can really learn the lessons that are there for us this morning, uh, we need to see what Christ is doing first with his disciples. You see, what may at first appear a rather harsh and difficult message is actually an important balance with everything that he's already said previously in this chapter. You see, expectations are a powerful thing. They are something that we all have, even if we're unaware of them. When I was lecturing in Old Testament, I would have a class which was the Old Testament view of marriage. And one of the interesting conclusions of numerous pieces of research that I included was that many marriages fail because of disappointment. And uh, this disappointment usually stemmed uh, from having unrealistic expectations as you went into the marriage. Uh, They put an unbearable strain on things. Uh, With this in mind, when I uh, lead uh, premarital classes, um, I usually ask a question which is quite telling. I'm I'm listening in, as it were, uh, when I ask, what do you expect from marriage? Now, if the answer reveals that their expectations are based on a fairy tale rather than the scriptures, then there are some serious conversations to be had. Of course, while I normally encounter unrealistically high expectations, we could, of course, have unfair low expectations as well, which can also lead to difficulty because you're setting yourself up to fail before you've even begun. Either way, the point is that expectations are powerful and when they fail to match with reality, they lead to disappointment and usually failure. Now, addressing the reality of the situation is exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples in these few hours before his betrayal. As I said before, you know, he is preparing them for his departure. This is what we've seen thus far in chapter 14. We see him begin by encouraging the disciples. He tells them that though he is leaving, it's with a good purpose in mind. Uh, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So he encourages them by explaining that the path that they've got to walk actually has a clear destination in mind, a goal that is beyond description. And he tells them that the journey on the path itself is underpinned by the power of God. Indeed, in verse 12, uh, he tells them that they will go on to take part in greater things, So as we see, he starts by encouraging them. He then comforts them with the promise that he would not leave them helpless, that this path that they walk with his great destination in mind is not to be taken alone. I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. And later on he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. So having been encouraged about where they are headed and comforted regarding whom they walk with, he then teaches them 
how they are to walk on that path. That's what we saw earlier in this chapter. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's how we're supposed to live. And it's important then, with all of that in in, in the background, that Jesus then tells his disciples how difficult the path is actually going to be. That is the role of the warning we read here in the last part of chapter 15. Christ is still preparing his disciples. He is trying to let them have a realistic grasp of the situation they find themselves in. He he doesn't want overly high expectations of an easy life to result then in their disappointment and stumbling when it gets hard. Of course, he doesn't want them to have fatalistically low expectations. And so he will remind them that they do not face the world alone. When we see that Jesus is equipping the disciples for life and not just the 11 listening to him at that time, but all of his people ever since, then we can find ourselves equipped to face the world with the right expectations to avoid the disappointment and despair that would otherwise arise. So Christ first sets about dismantling any notions that following him uh, is an easy path. After all, it certainly wasn't an easy path for Christ. Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, uh, some of you may be putting some hope in the if at the beginning of that phrase, if the world hates you. Uh, Sadly, uh, that is a hope I'm afraid I'm going to need to dash. Uh, We do not, um, uh, we should not be there thinking, well, you know, I hope I'm one of the lucky ones and I hope I'm one of the ones that's not hated. Um, The the Greek construct there should be read more like, um, if the world hates you, and it will, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus expands that point in verse 20, where persecution similar to that which Jesus encountered can also be expected for us. Now, before I go any further in unpacking this statement, uh, let me first address the elephant in the room. Sometimes we can meet resistance and even contempt because of how we go about things. So let me be clear. You should not be the source of the offence by being insensitive or rude or obnoxious. Uh, We are to conduct ourselves with wisdom, grace and sensitivity towards those who do not know Christ. That's what we read in Colossians 4, 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, don't get me wrong, there are times to be firm and there is no room for compromising on the truth of the gospel. But all too often, uh, Christians can be technically right in what they are saying, but they can be incredibly wrong in how they put it across. Now, you know, when it goes wrong, when you get a reaction simply because you are being infuriating, that's not what this verse is about. The point here is that Christ himself was hated. Christ himself was persecuted. 
And it is to the extent that we are like him, that we take after him, that we should draw that same hatred down on us. It is the hatred for Christ that is the focus. And it is a hatred that should be expected when we reflect him. And the second thing I suppose I should address is that many of us may be sitting there thinking, well, hate's a bit of a strong word. I mean, after all, many of us have friends uh, who are not saved and it is difficult to imagine them really hating us. Uh, Again, the the hatred that is being spoken about concerns Christ. It it may be that we maintain those friendships because we never mention Christ. or Perhaps we don't even pray for these friends. However, to be fair, usually most people in Scotland are fairly tolerant uh, until you insist Jesus is the only way to God. Then they see you as somewhat intolerant. They will be friendly until you make it clear that God has absolute moral standards and that anything else, any other standard, is not just less, it is wrong. Then you appear self-righteous and judgmental. They will be tolerant of your Christianity until you refuse to lie to cover up their wrongdoing or to cheat in favour of your employer. At that point, because you are undeniably different, then you will see the opposition. You will see a contrast that exists because just as Christ was not of this world, the same is true for us. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's important to remember that Christ was not part of this world. Uh, This uh, was already made clear when Jesus spoke to those who opposed him in chapter 8, verse 23. Uh, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus did not belong to this world. It had no claim over him. He was not compelled to live within its systems or the way of this world. Uh, We then as his people, are not to be conformed to this world, a world to which we do not belong. We are citizens of heaven. That is our true home. That is where we are expected, where room has been prepared for us. Uh, We who have been raised with Christ and are to be seated with him in heavenly places. We are sojourners on this earth, having been born from above. As such, we do not live according to the customs of this world. We do not walk in the same way. We think and speak and live in a way that is different from the world, a way that reflects Christ. At least we should. And if we do, then the world is troubled by us. Uh, I was... um, asked to take part in a short video that Alex was making to help people get to know the different members of staff. Uh, The simple task that I was given uh, was to think about things that I love and things that I hate. Now, I was warned to keep it light. uh, So instead of saying things like, I hate suffering and I I hate injustice, uh, I was supposed to include things that would reveal myself, um, uh, uh, such as divulging how irritating I find it when I see a sign that is misspelled. Or uh, when it came to love, uh, something light. Um, uh, And and so it could be something like uh, when I put clothes on straight out of the tumble dryer on a cold day. Anyway, uh, one of the things that was on my list I never actually got round to say uh, was I really love the moment 
when I remember I am a citizen of heaven. That, that moment really kicks in. You know, and often that moment is when pressure is being applied to measure up to some other people's expectations. And that little expectation is punctured. That, that wonderful moment where I remember that I'm a citizen of heaven, so therefore I have one judge. And he's not concerned with any of the ridiculous mundanity that the world says this is important. That the world says this has merit. I do not belong to the world. It has no claim on me. It cannot dictate how I am to think, how I am to act and what value I have. I am a child of God. And so my focus, my concern, the centre of my entire being is not down here. I am free. My joy is full. And there is nothing in this world that can even begin to imitate what I already possess. It reminds me of an occasion when I was a young teenager, a good while ago, uh, in school. Uh, we were supposed to imagine what we wanted to do in the future, what occupation uh, we were going to, to aim toward, as it was going to uh, affect what subjects we chose uh, to do in school the following year. And I remember being sat before a board and completely disinterested looking deputy rector as he's sitting there waiting to find out what I want to do. And she goes, what do you want to do when you're older? What do you want to be? And of course, he's expecting me to say, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a policeman. I want to be whatever. My answer was, uh, well, as a Christian, I want to be like Paul and I want to be content. Uh, understandably, the teacher looked at me with utter contempt, uh, saying, clearly, boy, you do not understand the question. Me being me, I replied, uh, no, sir, you clearly do not understand life. We don't play the games of the world. We are called to be different, to have a different goal, to be different, to see things differently. The passage this morning comes after what we've been talking about last week, when we were considering the, the love of friends, uh, specifically being a friend of Jesus. You see, given the incredible statement that it was to be a friend, you cannot be friends with both sides. As we read in Matthew 6.24 or James 4.4, 4, you cannot be on both sides. You cannot serve God and the world. The Old Testament describes the sharp contrast between the two as a contrast between life and death. God, the holy author of life, is compared to a world broken, sinful and in the grip of death. So how is it that we who are alive could possibly even think for a moment of siding with death? Now, having said all of this, it is perfectly understandable that we might be tempted to have somewhat low and unfairly low expectations. After all, the world hates us. You know, it hates the one that we love and therefore by extension us. We might in our despair just imagine, oh, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, perhaps we're simply resigned to a future filled with hatred. Well, that's not what we're told. That's not how we are to respond. You know, when I read this passage, I'm mindful that firstly, uh, we've already been told how we are to respond to each other. Um, you know, we have that great commandment to love one another. 
And that's a real contrast, love and hate. Uh, And in light of how the world should see us, the love for each other becomes even more precious, even more important for our day-to-day lives. But secondly, we, uh, we read this text and we see how we are supposed to respond to the world. If the world truly does hate us, then Jesus is clear that this is because they do not know God the Father. As we see in verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This is not a a reason for us to throw up our hands in despair and say, oh, well, what's the point? This is an invitation to go out into the world and show the father to it. As we see in verse 27, we are to be witnesses. That is our response. We are to speak in truth and love and demonstrate God's love. In every interaction we have, we need to be able to share our faith in our actions, never afraid to let people know whose name it is we act in, never afraid to talk about him when the time is right, but always, always in a way that gives him the glory and shows others love, contrasting to the hatred. We're not simply called to show hatred, maybe of a different type. We are called to be different. And we do not even do this alone. Instead, as we see in verse 26 and 7, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. We cannot hope to act in God's name or speak in God's name if we do not possess God, the Holy Spirit, within us. We always need to remember that it is by the Spirit, not by our own efforts, that we will show the Father to the world. It is a fact, however, that some people will not want to know. Uh, Many will reject God. They'll reject what he is doing and what we are saying in his name. But that has always been the case. It will always be the case. This is what happened to Jesus. Even when he made it absolutely clear who he was, even when there was no longer any denying that he was the Christ, people still rejected him, as we see in verse 24. The point, though, is that some people will listen. Some people will open themselves up to God's truth. But this can only happen if we stop focusing on how the world, you know, hates us, how it might make us feel. And if we focus on him. Remember, the hatred that we might have directed in our direction is really animosity towards Christ. It's not about us. And when we remember that, when we see beyond this opposition, we wake up to the fact that people need to hear and that we are the ones called to be witnesses. As Paul tells us in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, 
Jesus did not just go out into the world and complain that the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him or that uh, he was not being listened to by everyone uh, or that his followers were being ostracized or, or that he was being chased out of some of the towns. No, that's not how he responded. This example for us. No, he found people in every situation that he could find. People in authority and people with no authority. Uh, the educated and the uneducated, the tax collector, the adulteress, the widow, fishermen, soldiers, rabbis and all other walks of life. He found these people where they were by showing them love and telling them the truth. And as I've been saying from the outset, we are to reflect Christ. So this too is how we are to act. We're not to throw our toys out the pram when the world does not conform to our standards, when the world looks at us in confusion and anger and hate. We are to respond to hatred with love. When we read about the hatred of the world here, it is not something that we're to complain about. It simply reminds us of the calling that we've been given, of the Holy Spirit that enables us to stand and give witness in who we are and with what we say. We need to remember that ultimately the hatred is actually directed towards God and that the love that we show each other and the love that we show the world too comes from that same God. The ability to be a good witness comes from God. And so when opposition is directed towards us, yes, it's easy to forget that it's all about him. And when we do, we can be worn down. We can lose that contentment that is ours. But remember, we are citizens of heaven. Opposition is a reminder of our calling to tell the world that there is a redeemer, a redeemer that we know, a redeemer that they too could call their own. Amen.